Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. So Nash, just explain to start with, did you just call me Nash? Did I? <laughs> I like the idea that eventually... Eventually, me and the Nash are st- like one forming one yeah. Power, yeah, yeah. all-powerful yeah. blob. <laughs> What is it? What is, what, how do you... How do you ex- well, the Nish Report with Mash Kumar is a satirical <laughs> uh, comedy show. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley and in this episode I'll be speaking to Nish Kumar, host of the Mash Report and stand-up comedian. We'll be discussing the problems with trying to be fair in your comedy when Labour basically aren't doing anything. How he felt the night after the EU referendum result when a heckler told him to go home and his concerns about the rise of racism and intolerance since the Brexit vote. And Piers Morgan's reaction to that cartoon with his head up Donald Trump's backside. But I began by asking him to explain what exactly the MASH report is all about. Um, it's a fake news programme and I am, uh, I am the sort of notional anchor of it. And it's a collaboration between me and a bunch of writers that I've been working with for a long time and a bunch of writers who come from the Daily Mash, which is obviously Britain's premier satirical news website. It's a sort of, it's a mixture of real news and fake news. And it's the closest thing we've seen in the UK to the sort of the Daily Show with Jon Stewart or yeah, John Oliver, that type of... It looks like news, but actually it's satire, but there's serious bits in it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And uh, there's no point in us pretending that we're not all massively influenced by those shows. <laughs> those shows. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to come out and be like, John Hewitt? <laughs> but it's simply not the case. And so how, how does a show like that come about? Because in a way, it's, a, it's surprising that this hasn't happened before, given that, you know, how long the Daily Show and stuff has been happening yeah. in America. Um, and because it is essentially a man behind a desk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it did take so long? I think there's a couple, there's some there's some really boring practical elements to it, and one of them is that um, we don't have the same culture of writers' rooms yeah. and 
uh, you know, a, mo a lot of our comedy, and I, and I think it, I think this is a good thing because I think it, it means that a lot of British comedy has a very distinctive tone, uh, but a lot of it is sort of driven by one or two, or at most three or four people. We don't quite have the culture of a writer's room, and this is one of the first shows where a, a channel has kind of been willing to, you know, put together a group of people because one or two people could not put the show together. It really does take take a village. So we are in the writers' room now. Yes. This is where you do your writing. Yeah, big, yeah. Big desk, some scripts, a bottle of ketchup for Classic. reasons for, for reasons unknown. Yeah. So how, how many people are in this room? Well, there's two. This is one of two rooms. Right. So in this room, I will be working for the rest of the day with three other writers. And then in the room next to us, there'll be another four writers who work, who have come from and through the Daily Merch. And so they will be working on the sort of fake headlines elements of it and some of the correspondence stuff. Um, and we'll be working on my monologues and sort of opening remarks that I do stood up in front of the screen. And then later on today, Rachel Paris will come in, who's one of our correspondents, and she will be in and around here. And, um, and then, you know, Jeff Norcott will be in later and Desiree Birch and... People will be people will start to filter in, so it's quite a big operation. We and I think I think also the other reason that a show like this hasn't happened before is there have been attempts, but what marked us out was that we did a non, not for broadcast pilot and then were commissioned for ten episodes. If this show does end up succeeding and running for a long time, it will be that decision um, because a lot of the time what happens is people do a not-for-broadcast pilot and then they do either a pilot or a short order of three or four episodes and it takes more than that to get a show like this off the ground. And it's striking that because you did four episodes over the summer. Yeah. Now you're into a sort of six-part series. Yeah. The series feels tonally different to the one in the summer. I yeah. Think. It, it feels like you've got the easy stuff without being really the easy stuff out of your system in the first yeah, yeah. four episodes and now it's sharper and also there's a bit of assumed not I think sometimes that these sort of satirical shows fail because they try to think that nobody knows anything about yeah. anything and we'll yeah. just do jokes about Trump and Nigel yeah, yeah, yeah. and Boris and that will sort of get us through yeah was this you know you've done in one recent episode you did a whole bit on the European reform group yeah <laughs> Which, I mean, I avo I avoid talking about them very much on a politics podcast because I think it's a bit of a sort of specialist taste. Um, and this is the group of backbench Tory MPs led by Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, that's but, you right, know, yeah. The fact that sort of doing a deep dive on something like that, does, does there's a sort of element of education for the viewer in it as well. Yeah, I think also from a comedic perspective, we're trying to add value because we're, you know, with social media and Twitter and Facebook... There's a lot of people writing very quick, funny, responsive jokes to the major news headlines. I'm slightly biased because of my working relationship with them. I would say that the Daily Mash are the kind of, they're the kings of that yeah. in this country. But there is a lot of that available to people. And so when it comes to actually making a TV show, you're just trying to add value comedically. And one of the ways you can do that, everybody knows Donald Trump speaks like an idiot. Like everyone <laughs> knows that. Like my... My mother knows that, and if it called upon... They could upon, probably do a half-decent yeah, she could about absolutely it, exactly, yeah. do, not just a half-decent, she could probably do a five-minute monologue <laughs> about Donald Trump speaking like an idiot, like, off the top of her head. And so, with us, it's try, we're trying to add value, and also it's just our personal interest. You know, it's easy to write jokes about things you're really interested in and passionate about. The European Research Group is a really good example of something that has been sort of rattling around the office... 
um, for a, a good couple of weeks because it's just a really interesting example of something that I think is slightly alarming in the, the sort of Brexit negotiations in how some of them seem to be, you know, I mean, this was the point of the monologue, how we seem to be in a situation where we've been told that this thing is a great returning of power to people and yet, and a victory against unaccountable elites and yet Jacob Rees-Mogg and a secret society are meeting <laughs> to guide the policy yeah. about it. I mean, that's interesting to us and also, you know, grim way that's funny yeah. it's funny that you know these champions it's funny that Jacob Rees-Mogg has become a champion of the people <laughs> I wrote my column at the weekend on Jacob Rees-Mogg he, yeah. he is the Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen handy Andy yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was amazed by how cross people yeah. got the supporters of him yeah. in a way that I haven't really seen from I don't think from Tories before you know, I've seen it with some you know, if I'm rude about Nigel Farage, you expect a bit of that, yeah, or yeah. J- Jeremy Corbyn. But he has got this sort of, it is a cult thing. That Absolutely, if you're yeah, yeah. rude about him, they, they really come for you. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who has been speaking critically, I would say fairly, other people would say critically about the Brexit process in relatively, the sort of relatively the public eye, it, normally what you get criticised for is, it, the, the thing that people are defending is Brexit. Yeah. And what you get criticised for is attacking the concept of Brexit. But it is really interesting how that is starting to shift now into a kind of cult of personality around Rees-Mogg. So as you've raised Brexit, even though for a large part, and I've said this lots of times on the podcast before, it is quite boring, Brexit. It is. It is very boring. Uh, and particularly, and maybe that's, maybe that's why it's turned into a cult personality, because the personalities, Boris yeah, and that's right, yeah. David Davis and Jacob Rees-Mogg are interesting, whereas yeah. the difference between a customs union and the customs yeah, union yeah, exactly. is less so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you keep on, because you, do, you, do you think, well, we've got to do a bit on Brexit every week, or do you... Is there a limit to how many different ways you can come at it? I don't know. I don't think that we. I don't think that we're under any pressure to do Brexit stuff every week. But at the same time, it is the biggest constitutional change in certainly my lifetime. Yeah. It does make sense that it's this kind of gripping, rolling news story. I mean, Trump and Brexit are these two kind of things where sort of every week you look at and you go. I mean, we could do something about them every week, but I think it's about working out whether we're sort of talking about something interesting rather than just talking about them for the sake of talking about them. And I was looking back at some interviews you did just after the EU referendum mm. and you talked about an incident that happened when you were doing Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were basically heckled. So just explain first of all what happened. Yeah, it, uh, it was the night of the... So it was the Friday night. So we'd voted to leave... So the vote had happened on the Thursday and the result had come through on the Friday and I was playing the comedy store in the centre of London which is a kind of important, has a kind of important symbolic value because the comedy store is, uh, was where alternative comedy in yeah, this country developed yeah, yeah. in the 1980s. I, a man told me to go home in response to my sort of, it was an interesting thing because I'd come out and spoken quite negatively about Brexit and had a sort of back and forth with some people who were Leave voters as I thought would happen yeah. and as you found some leave voters in yeah, London exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. you can find them <laughs> and they took exception to my views as is their right yeah. uh, so we and we sort of had a back and forth and then we sort of it calmed itself down and everything had kind of been resolved and then later on in the set I was making a sort of offhand remark about 
how what a historic moment regardless of how I felt yeah. about it I appreciated the history of this moment because I was about to do a stupid joke about how I studied history <laughs> it was just a feed line and this bloke just shouted at me to go home and it was uh, it was a really I mean it was a bracing moment and it was I'm 32 years old I've been very lucky in terms of being a person of colour in this country in my lifetime has been comparatively easy. I mean, I'm not saying that it's been without prejudice, but not compared to my mum who came here in the 70s, yeah. you know. And I, But I sort of, I have a thick skin about it if people shout at me in the street, but for some reason, the, the fact that they had come into my place of work, the fact that it was in the comedy store, and the fact that it was the, it was the night that we had left, it all felt like a very sort of symbolic, symbolic moment. I'd read that you were con- you were concerned that maybe the result would inflame those sorts of tensions. Mm. Have you? What's your experience been since? Has it? Has those fears been borne out? To some extent, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, we've seen um, in the immediate aftermath of the referendum there was the spike in hate crimes. Yeah. I-, I still see there's been a, a legitimization of certain views that I think we had previously all considered to be outdated. Yeah. Um, and I see that uh, online, uh, and if people want to see that, do feel free to search my name. <laughs> do feel free to just pump, pump my name into Twitter and see what, what, what gets said about me. Um, and yeah, I've seen that in, I see that in the discourse, you know, we, we've got a stack of newspapers in front, and I see some of those views creeping into, uh, into newspapers now. Um, and I mean, I say creeping in, it had been coming in for yeah. years, and part of that is what drove the Brexit vote. The thing that really alarmed me and continues to alarm me to some extent is that um, leave voters who I know to not be racist. My, my struggle with it is the way that a lot of people, and part of the reason I had not intended to speak about what happened at the comedy store, yeah. because I just thought, what's the point in adding yeah, more? Yeah. You know, it's, everything has already gone to hell. Like, there's no point in me continuing to, to do it. And uh, I saw, um, I don't think I've ever talked about this. I had been asked to do, uh, write articles about it. And I had talked about, I was in the process of doing an Edinburgh show, at the, writing an Edinburgh show at the time. And um, I sort of was just like, oh, I, just, I don't feel like, I don't feel like talking about this. And then I saw Daniel Hanan on being interviewed uh, by Christiana Manpour on, from CNN. Yeah. And she, was, she raised the issue of hate crimes. And he uh, refused to acknowledge that there was any cause and effect. He refused to even engage with her on the subject. And he, I just, I was so disturbed by that. Because, it, you know, there's plenty of people who voted leave that are friends of mine, that are my par- like yeah. parents of my friends, you know, that I know to not be racist. But what alarms me is the, uh, the fact that they take no responsibility for it. And don't see that this is a problem at all. And that I find very disturbing because if this situation is going to be resolved, it's going to need to be with the cooperation of non-racist leave voters to work with the rest of us to try and purge this from, you know, from British society. And that's why I, that's that, I saw that interview and right, and went, right, I'm putting it in the show. I'm going to write an article because I was... I, 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 it was really weird watching somebody deny your experience. Yeah. It's really strange. It's interesting. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said quite early on that the problem is that not all Leave voters are racist, mm-hmm. but Leave did have all of the racists. Yeah, and it's that, a that's tricky a, thing. That's a crude characterisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is, 
And you know, you had these sort of two separate camps, if you like. You had Boris Johnson going on a bus talking about the NHS, but you had Nigel Farage going around on a bus talking That's about right. yeah, breaking yeah, yeah. point. Yeah. And those two, for all of Boris Johnson's many faults, he's actually incredibly liberal on immigration in a way that Nigel yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very liberal on immigration. He has an unfortunate track record of using racial <laughs> slurs racial, in Daily <laughs> Telegraph articles. There is, there, there is. Yeah. As I said, oh, he has many <laughs> uh, But he's, the concept of immigration he's liberal on, even if his uh, use of language around it isn't. So when you're, given that you are outspoken about Brexit, yeah. and you are doing a show on British television at all, but particularly at the BBC, yeah. is there an issue about balance and you know I know you've got Jeff Norcott as your sort of that's right uh, one of our one of our leave voting the representative of vote leave yeah is that is that an issue when you're doing the show worrying about balance and or do you have to be sort of taking equal opportunities line of attacking everyone equally yeah I mean the the, the thing with the the way that the BBC wants us to work is they want us to feel free to make jokes about whatever we we want to make jokes about but obviously there is this the, the corporation Contrary to a lot of what people think, the BBC works very, very hard to maintain a, a kind of, I guess, what you would call a balance. Yeah. They, they, you know, I've done a lot of stuff down the years and there's a huge amount of conversation and hand-wringing about balance. What, what we can't do is change the news. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, thing that we, the thing that they always try and stress with us is just, you know... It, people always say, well, why don't you do jokes about Labour? And it's, it's a bit like, Labour aren't really doing much at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So we, all we do is try and roughly replicate the coverage that's already sort of yeah, out yeah. there in the paper. I was going to ask about that, because I had noticed that Corbyn doesn't get that much coverage. In fact, I think last week or the week before you even did a joke about how boring he was. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. sort of exasperation. We must do something about Corbyn, but actually he's really boring. Do you think, is that... A, a problem do you think that you does that all end up feeding into well it's all just a sort of lefty loving yeah that, but that I think that was a lot of those people were are not going to be convinced otherwise yeah you know I mean I mean Jeff Norcott is on there you so know, Jeff, but, Jeff is, is unusual Jeff is, that Jeff, right Jeff is unusual in that he's a conservative comedian conservative yeah. leave voting comedian yeah. And his segments with me are basically playing out conversations he have off stage. Um, and um, but what we the, just what we think is funny is to try and get Jeff and I to establish common ground. Yeah. Because that's that is always funny. Yeah, is, yeah. is when Jeff is able to convince me of a point that I initially start out thinking is unreasonable. Yeah. I mean, I know that people think that the thing is skewed a certain way. The reality is, with a lot of this stuff, it's like the Conservatives are in power, yeah. you know. If you want people to stop making jokes about you, I would advise losing more elections. <laughs> because being in opposition is a really good way to avoid... If you look at the sort of preeminent satires that were on television when I was growing up, there are things like the day-to-day and brass eye, which they, they were a satire, really, of the presentation of news yeah, yeah. rather than a specific political ideology. What's the best British satirical show of the period between 1999 and 2010? It is easily the thick of it, yeah. which is so nakedly about the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he claims otherwise, but Malcolm Tucker was so clearly inspired <laughs> by Alistair yeah, Campbell. Yeah. And I don't remember... It's. A, I mean, the think of it's one of the greatest television yeah. shows of all time. I don't remember a huge amount of people at the time being like, "When will this anti-Labour 
yeah. you know, it's you you end up satirizing whatever the current government yeah. is. That's always going to be your principal target. At the minute, I mean, just in the perhaps worryingly for a lot of, for all of us. The opposition party doesn't seem to be doing a huge amount at the yeah. moment. Yeah, no, and I, I find the same thing when I'm yeah. writing about when I'm writing the red box email every day, and it just because I find Brexit quite boring or like the internal machination of the Tory party. Yeah. And you look around for Jeremy Corbyn. He's yeah, yeah, not yeah. in. I remember to, I think it was towards the end of last year we actually some of our data people looked at the numbers, and he was at one point getting Jeremy Corbyn was getting less media coverage than David Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's the leader, and, but they, you know, and partly because they, their, their plan for Brexit is even vaguer than the government's. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and just hiding and hoping that it all comes good in the end seems to be the... Yeah, that's, that, is, that does seem, that is concerning for us. We're, we're prepping something at the moment, a VT piece, where Andrew Hunter Murray tries to work out what Labour's Brexit policy is, but in the manner of a 1930s Humphrey Bogart-style private investigator, <laughs> like just trying to get to the bottom of what Labour's Brexit policy is. Um, but well, we look forward to the outcome of that. Yeah, if we I can look get forward to, to seeing that. Anyway, well, it's, they're supposed to have an away day. Yeah. Uh, they're supposed to generate. That sounds awful. What concerns me is, I mean, what? How far are we? We're just over a year away from coming out of the EU, and the Tory Party is laying out a roadmap for Brexit, and the Labour Party is doing an away day to decide its policy. And you go. It's a bit late for an away it does day. feel a bit late yeah. for an away day. Trust exercises and yeah. a plate of sandwiches. <laughs> Unlike Nish in the cosy BBC world, some of us have to rely on advertising. So we're just going to take a short break and we'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. I'm Matt Chorley, speaking to Nish Kumar in this special episode of the Times Red Box podcast. One thing I wanted to ask you about was the role of social media, because I think it's interesting how... The MASH report, in a way, is born out of the Daily MASH, yeah. so it kept, which is a huge phenomenon on Facebook and Twitter. And obviously, yeah. it's an online website. But also, then, the sort of show loops back and mm. has some of its biggest hits on Facebook. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah, yeah. Because of the nature of the show, it's cut up in segments, so the segments come out. Yeah. Media. Does that play a part in your thinking? In terms of the way we write a show, it doesn't at all. Um, we, um, it's segmented because a news programme is segmented. Yeah. You know, that's... we. Every, everything that's in the show, it, we try and make it have some root in a news, yeah. in what, would, what you would normally see in a news programme. So my bits are just 
the anchor of the, yeah. the news show. The news desk are 24-hour, like 24-hour yeah. news headline desks. And, um, and Rachel Paris is the, this kind of weird trend for people to just stand in front of a screen. A massive screen. Yeah, to, for people to stand in front of a massive screen and not really explain an issue to you. <laughs> and that was one of the things when we were talking about, because Rachel did lots of stuff with social media, and one of the things that after the summer that every, all of us agreed with, including a lot of the viewers, was that everyone wants to see more Rachel do more stuff. So this is, this is so I think, as a viewer, Rachel Paris at the big screen is is this one of the standout bits of the show. Yeah, and it's one great. of the best. So talk me through each because I've never met her. Is she really like that, or is this basically a character? No, this is a because Ray, yeah. It is so dead behind the eyes, breakfast telly, awkward laughter, not really understanding what the author keeps I think saying. One it's, of the other big things in terms of us being able to do this show is I don't know how much of this was a conversation because this was this was made by uh, Chris Dart and Mark Barrett and Danny Carr who were the sort of producers who were involved in hiring certainly Chris Dart particularly at the pilot stage was keen to have Rachel in one of the things that The Daily Show did was combine people who had a stand-up background with people who'd yeah. been in improv yeah. and Rachel is an actress and an improviser yeah. so her and Andrew Hunt and Murray both come from this show Ostentatious yeah. which is they improvise a whole Jane Austen novel it's a long form improv thing they're unbelievable actors. So Rachel is a phenomenal actor. She's nothing like that. <laughs> Good, I'm pleased to hear it. No, she, Rachel is like this kind of really placid, very genuine, lovely person. But when we, when we were working out the character, but the, the, uh, uh, the character she nailed, she developed almost immediately in the pilot that never yeah. went out. One of the first rehearsals we had together, she, I said something like, I, I literally, in the read-through, I said, Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Paris, and she went. She just looked at me and went, "Thank you, Nish, and well done," or something. Like, and, <laughs> well, like just immediately off the bat, yeah. she had that sort of dead behind the eyes, passive aggressive. To yeah. I think the thing is, Rachel and I know. Rachel and I have been friends, and we've known each other for a long time. And so I think because of that, she was just like, "I can just rip." rip it. She just knew that she would be able to just rip straight into me. And um, so probably. Some of the stuff which has gone most viral mm. has been from her. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Piers Morgan. <laughs> and uh, so she she does these sort of how-to guide, basically treating you like an idiot. She does a yeah, how-to yeah, yeah. guide. She did one, a really good one on sexual harassment yeah. and the difference between what is and isn't sexual. She did one about how to carry out a political interview. Yeah. And the difference between Frost Nixon sitting across each other from yes. on two chairs. And then there was a cartoon of Donald Trump and Piers Morgan. Yeah. With uh, Piers Morgan's head up, Donald yeah, Trump's yeah, ass. Yeah. And it was very funny. And in the context of the whole sketch, yeah. I thought it was very right. Now, Piers Morgan took some exception to this. Well, he did, but over a quite long period of time. <laughs> if you look at the. I'm not sure because he deleted. A, he did end up deleting a bunch of his tweets about it. But he, he tweeted in the morning. Um, maybe he didn't delete a bunch. He definitely deleted one that he contacted, he tweeted me and then ended up deleting it. But he tweeted in the morning something about, you know, when the piece went out, I've, I've had dealings with peers uh, within the calendar year. Um, so as when we were writing the piece, you know, Rachel, she had this angle on it and she was sort of saying, I wonder if he's going to sort of respond to it. And I was like, he probably will, but... I, I suspect he won't make a big deal out of it. Showing once again my <laughs> profound lack of understanding of the inner workings of the Morgan brain. 
because he sort of responded to the the BBC Two tweet with a slightly passive aggressive thing. Uh, and I thought, well, that's fine. And then I don't know what happened, but at some point later in the day, he decided that he'd had enough. And then there was a sort of, he just started tweeting uh, about the thing. Then he just started tweeting the image itself. I think what he was hoping to do was, when you take the image out of context, I mean, obviously it's an incredibly crude joke. Yeah. No doubt about it's it. Not, it's not high-minded. No, it's not high-minded. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, in the context of what Rachel's doing, part of the thing, part of the great thing with Rachel is that she's able to get away with yeah. really nasty stuff because she is this kind of, she's a smiling assassin. But in the context of the clip, you see it's like, you know, it's just the Frost Nixon and then the contrast. And it's done for, you know, it's, it's on screen for a split second. You get the laugh and you're out. But I think what he was hoping to do was by taking it out of context, he would, you know, I think he, he tried to make it look worse than it is. The problem is it then blew up in his face because obviously everyone just went, it's really funny that that happened. And he was trying to make the argument that you wouldn't do this with two women or two men who were gay. Yeah, which is, uh, as, as various of people who work on this show and friends of ours who are gay pointed out that in of itself is an incredibly homophobic <laughs> allegation that you know that is not an inherently homosexual act assuming it is is at best weirdly patronizing um and in terms of the two women thing i'm afraid that we don't live in a world where we're in a position where many powerful leaders are women and many prominent journalists are women. That's just the reality of it. And then he made some sort of comparison with Laura Koonsberg interviewing Theresa May. But I saw Laura Koonsberg interview Theresa May and it was a hostile interrogation. It was a journalist doing their job. Yeah. There's nothing funny to say about that. And also, I mean, in defence of Piers Morgan, if, if that <laughs> sentence is not uh, yeah. completely mad, um, Trump is so difficult to deal with yeah sucking up to him is yeah, the only because yeah, yeah. well, I remember uh, Michael Gove interviewed Trump for the Times I remember that yeah and he was he was criticised for exactly the same yeah. reason I'd spoken to him afterwards and he just said the only way you can get an in with him is basically to start every sentence with right yeah you're great aren't you and then you so that's how, I mean that's basically how Morgan managed to get an almost apology out of him by just sort of ladling on praise and then trying to get a thing out of it. Otherwise, you just, I think you just yeah, got shot. And it is basically like dealing with a spoiled child. From our show's perspective, for us, we, it, it, it looks so odious. Yeah. You know, Rachel was just sort of like, you know, she's just like, it's, why did he, what was the point? You know, what was the point of, you, you have to ladle praise on him. What's the point of interviewing him you know you're getting I, I didn't think and the thing is the other key thing about that apology is that it's not actually an apology yeah. he says I would apologise and yeah, what yeah. you're waiting for is the apology is the yeah, apology yeah. all credit to Morgan he got the interview because he's mates with him yeah. and because he was going to give him an easy ride yeah yeah so accept some criticism about the fact that you've yeah. got it for being mates with him and you gave him an, I, I, easy, I don't know. an I, easier ride I mean I can't work out what he thought would happen when that interview aired there was yeah. always going to be I mean I think I think history will look back very unkind. I'll be surprised <laughs> if it is made into a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it could be made into a film, but I'm just not sure it's a film Piers Morgan would want to go and watch. <laughs> I'm not sure it'd be you, particularly flattering. You could do the illustrations for it. Yeah. So, uh, before, we, before we wind up, are there any subjects for you that are out of bounds, either because they're too offensive or because they're too boring? Uh, we've never taken anything off the table. Yeah. You know, we, we would never take anything off the table. You know, it's about, it's about making it funny. Yeah. You know, it, it, 
with a lot of this, with some of the stories, I mean, some of the stuff going on this week, uh, you're looking at it thinking, is there a way for us to make this funny? If we can find a way to make something funny, we will absolutely do it. And we, we're very supported by, I know that in my position, the fashionable thing to say is like, we're always up against the suits, man. <laughs> we're very supported by, it's not true, we're very supported by the BBC and, and they're very encouraging of us. And so we, we sort of exist in an atmosphere where nothing is off the table. But it's a question of, can you find, uh, can you find a funny angle in something that's either gutturally depressing or something that's incredibly boring. And if you, the thing is, if you can, often that, that's the most rewarding stuff. I mean, the brilliant thing about Rachel's sexual harassment clip is that's a really, you know, she, there's a lot of real feeling in that piece. Like that, I think that's what people really respond this to. this is the one that's been viewed by 20 million yeah, people Yeah, absolutely. Online. And I think what a lot of people are responding to there, and the, the brilliance of Rachel is that she's, she's able to both communicate the comedy of the situation and the genuine feeling behind it. Yeah, For yeah. someone like her, who, I mean, she's a woman working in the entertainment yeah. industry, and that story is, it could not be closer to home for her. Yeah. All of the, the Weinstein revelations, you know, it couldn't be closer to home for her. It's something that she could not be more passionate about. And I thought what was brilliant about that was she managed to get that passion into that piece and that anger and still made it incredibly funny. And that's the real... And as a result, as a viewer, that co- I think ends up having more power than a very powerful speech. Sure, yeah. Yeah, but a serious speech, which she, quite a lot of people yeah. have done. People she just boiled it, with, it down in a yeah. way that was, that was really interesting. But it was something that was really, it was really close to home for her. And the brilliance of her as a, you know, she's a brilliant writer and put the piece together, came together brilliantly. But also that... Um, there's a bit in that where I say something like, because I wasn't rehearsed in the, I deliberately wasn't rehearsed in the sketch. They really wanted me to, they wanted to see that real discomfort yeah. and they correctly did not trust my acting ability. <laughs> and the bit where I say, don't rehearse Nish, it'll be fine Nish, we won't yeah. embarrass you. That was me ad-libbing okay. and welcome to womanhood, which is her response, yeah. was a, she improvised that yeah. in the moment. And it, that line spoke, I think, spoke to a lot of women. Yeah, yeah. It's that's that's the sweet spot is where you've got sort yeah, of yeah. something that where you could, where you're able to communicate passion and still make it funny. Do you see this role that you have now about changing people's minds, or is it just about the jokes? I think it's got to start with the jokes. Yeah, it's always got to start with the jokes. I think because suppose if you're doing a stand-up show mm. you might go in it thinking I really want to hammer home this point and yeah, yeah. maybe change people's minds but it, is it different if it's a stand-up show over an hour you know you know that there's there doesn't have to be I think in a stand-up show if you're one person speaking for an hour it's difficult to just do jokes yeah. you've got to think about I supported Milton Jones on tour for about six months and it was amazing watching him I mean he's like the funniest guy yeah. You know, in terms of just like one, he could just one liner after yeah. one liner, and people would happily watch him just do one liners. And with Milton, he doesn't. Obviously, Milton isn't just gonna, you know, take a break to talk about, I don't know, like agricultural policy for five minutes. <laughs> but it was really interesting watching how Milton tried to introduce through staging, add something else yeah. to keep people engaged yeah. and interested. And he uses an OHP, and and so my sort of version of that is to kind of have yeah, a, a whole load of jokes, and then try and have some kind of political message to just to give the thing a bit of sort of light and shade 
I think with our show, I think you must never lose sight of the fact that it's a comedy show first. That's the biggest lesson from someone like John Stewart and John Oliver is that they never lost sight of it. and Chris Morris and Armando Iannucci. Yeah. These are they never lose the funny, and we always start from that position. Everything else from there is a bonus. If you accidentally make a point along the yeah, way, yeah. If you accidentally a make a point, I mean, we we always try and. We, we, the way that we write, particularly the monologues, is we start with an argument and we plot out the argument and then we hang the jokes off the, yeah. off the argument because it gives it a sort of momentum yeah. and a reason for the jokes to be together. It's funny first and then everything else is a happy accident. Well, it's been really good to speak to you. I know you've got to get on and start writing in this very yeah. moment. <laughs> so, uh, well, thanks to Nash Kumar. <laughs> uh, Nash Kumar from The Mish Report. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please post a review on iTunes. If you didn't, keep your views to yourself. Sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.